back in the book of Matthew this morning. And uh, we're going to be looking at this, picking up where we left off before Christmas. Uh, the title of the sermon today is Don't Treasure Treasures. Don't Treasure Treasures. And it's, it's hard to believe uh, that it's been two months since we've been in Matthew on a Sunday morning. But uh, in between then, we, we heard from Fred Thompson right after Thanksgiving. And uh, then we went into Advent. And then we had New Year's. And then I had COVID. And between all that, it's been two months. But uh, here we are getting back into it. And uh, hopefully we make a good run at it. And uh, I've been excited to get back into where we are. And uh, just a little bit of a reminder of where we've been in chapter 6. And uh, Jesus started the chapter with this warning where he said this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. If chapter 5 was all about true righteousness, uh, then chapter 6 follows that theme, but with this caveat. And it's this, that true righteousness is always lived out before an audience of one. Before an audience of one. So beware of practicing your righteousness in order to be seen or for the purpose of being seen by others. And in chapter 6, before Thanksgiving, we saw that with three different things. We saw it with, with giving. We saw it with prayer, and we saw it with fasting. Three things that, as Jesus was addressing his audience, a devout Jewish person would have and should have been doing on a regular basis. And we could say, for our purpose, three things that followers of Jesus probably are already doing. But the question is, why do we do what we do, right? If we ever give, pray, or fast to be seen or recognized by others, then we have all the reward that we'll ever get. In our human recognition. As I thought back over what we had studied uh, so far in Matthew 6, I would sum it up this way. Um, while the implications of our righteousness are often outward or manward, in other words, uh, people do well because of righteousness, people prosper because of righteousness, people have better relationships because of righteousness, while the, while the implications of our righteousness are often outward, the focus of our righteousness is always to be Godward. When we follow Jesus, we, we live righteously. People around us will see, will notice. People will benefit, perhaps, by the things we do. When we live according to the truth of Scripture, it often will result in a quantitatively better life and maybe better relationships. But the goal is never simply a better life and better relationships. The goal is always God. The goal is always his glory and his renown. And that reminds us of what we learned in Matthew 5. One of the things Jesus said there is, in the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So the text we come to this morning, uh, we're going to start in verse 19 of chapter 6. It follows that same theme, that same line, uh, with giving, with praying, with fasting, Jesus started his teaching with when you give, when you pray, when you fast. And he changes the form of phrase here from a positive to a negative. And he starts off verse 19 with a very clear, do not do this. Do not do this. And what is it that we are not to do? Well, we are not to, as verse 19 of Matthew 6 says, lay up for ourselves treasures 
on earth. And I would say that this whole section that we're going to look at today, 19 through 24, really follows that idea of, of living before an audience of one, and it really addresses the principle, uh, one of the principal failings of, of our culture, of our day and age. And perhaps it's the same of any culture that is blessed with relative wealth, and that is the problem of materialism. As I was reading various books this week, uh, one of the authors that I read often, John Stott, about this passage called it the materialism which tethers our heart to the world. The materialism which tethers our heart to the world. And that, I think, is a good way to put it, because if we are learning that our focus is to be Godward, not manward, then that would imply that our focus should be Godward rather than earthward as well. And that is true with our giving, with our praying, with our fasting. And as we see in this section, it is certainly true with our treasure. Now, we should say up front here that there's not a condemnation in this passage for, for having things, for having wealth even. Uh, if you're relatively wealthy, it's not a sin, just like if you're relatively poor, it's not a sin. In Scripture, there are warnings for the wealthy. There are pitfalls to watch out for if you are wealthy. But the principal sin of the wealthy is not being wealthy. It's gaining or using that wealth in an unrighteous manner. And here specifically, it's making that wealth the pursuit of your life, and it's making that wealth your master. The song that we sang just a few minutes ago, uh, My Worth is Not in What I Own, uh, I think that sums it up well. My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. And here, before we even get into the passage, is a great application. Whether your lot in life is to be relatively wealthy, or whether it's just to be comfortable, or whether it's to be poor, your value before God does not depend on your riches and treasure, but rather your value is based on the supreme treasure, which is Christ himself. And that ties us back perfectly to our passage from last week in Lamentations, where Jeremiah said this, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. So in keeping with that theme, uh, the Lord is our portion and an audience of one, our, our big idea for today is this. Our life does not consist in treasures, but in our Lord. So may we treasure and look with a single eye to our true master. We'll look at this in three sections. And first, in verses 19 through 21, we will see a single treasure. Let's read this whole passage, and then we'll pray. Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. 
So firstly, a single treasure, a single treasure. The, the main question of these three verses here, these first three verses is this, what do you treasure? What do you treasure? And it comes in that familiar form. This is one of those scriptures that we've heard a thousand times. If you've been in church most of your life, it comes to us as lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And again, the title for today is don't treasure treasures because that is kind of the, the literal way that Jesus said this. The word for lay up or store up is the same word as the word for treasures. One is used as a verb and one is used as a noun. So don't treasure treasures. And the question again, so simple, is what do we treasure? Uh, one use of the word for treasuring something is to preserve it or to pickle it. And we know what, the, what that is, to, to can or to pickle vegetables, to preserve them for a long time, something we want to keep and safeguard, doing our best to protect them so they don't do bad. Food has high value. We want to use it in the future. So that's one of the meanings here is that you're sort of preserving things. What is it that you treasure enough to preserve in your life? What is it that you don't want to lose? And we can ask, what is your treasure? But maybe more fitting to Jesus' words is the question, where is your treasure? Where is your treasure? Now, Jesus has a way of asking questions that are revealing, doesn't he? And one of those questions is this very one. Where is your treasure? And he asks that question after sort of tarnishing, if I can use a pun, uh, the value of our treasures with how he describes what happens to them. And what does happen to them? Well, he says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. We're familiar with the idea of moths. Uh, we have things that we purchase like mothballs. We have cedar chests. Some people line their closets with cedar because it deters certain insects. And it's all to avoid the problem of garments being eaten up by moths. And you go back a number of years later and you find holes in your clothes that you had stored. Well, in Jesus' day, a garment was one of the supreme ways which you would display wealth. If that first sort of opinion, if that first oppression is every, impression is everything, then if somebody can see you from a distance and know, well, that's a wealthy person because of your appearance, then in man's eyes, you've done well for yourself, or so you think. But that garment could be easily tattered and made dull by insects, insects which don't care whether that garment is ornate or drab, right? Insects which don't care whether its owner is rich or poor. The same goes for rust. If you're reading a different translation, you might have a different word. You might have the word vermin or even worms. And uh, the idea there, the word behind that is the word for consumption. Uh, rust is the consumption of metals because of oxidation. And worms and vermin consume our goods and materials, don't they? Either way, the principle is the same as the moth-eaten garments. Uh, thinking of rust, well, here in Vermont, we have wonderful road crews which do well to give us the best chance of traveling safely. But one of the major side effects of, of that winter road maintenance is rust because of the salt and the sodium that's being spread. And rust doesn't care whether your car was 
was $10,000 or whether it was $50,000. Once that vehicle is a few years old and has had some winter travel under its, under its belt, so to speak, the rust begins. But what about vermin? Well, we could stick with winter in Vermont for that illustration too, right? Because if you have a home which is warm inside, chances are you have things that are outside that want to get inside your warm home. And if you have any little tiny spot where a mouse or a squirrel can get in your basement or attic, they will come in. They will make themselves at home. They will find a food source. They will crawl up the walls at night when you're trying to sleep and startle you. And uh, again, they don't care whether you live in a mansion or whether you live in an old shed. Moths, rust, and mice are really no respecter of your wealth. Moths eat, rust consumes, and the third thing that Jesus says is thieves break in and steal. In all these cases, whether it's eaten, whether it's devoured, or whether it's stolen, the thing that was valuable is now made worthless. It's now made worthless. All the efforts in the world to treasure up treasures, at the end of the day, can still leave us vulnerable. Now, somebody who has wealth might say something like, well, my wealth is secure. It's, it's held in long-standing, reputable establishments. It's held in lands. It's held in precious metals, etc." And that may be true, but there's always the person that comes along and says, well, we're only one big disaster away from every form of wealth being useless and worthless. And beyond that, every treasure on earth is fading away. We can take all the care imaginable to protect our earthly treasure, but we cannot control how long we live. We always take note when, when famous or notable people pass away. And if you've been in the news, you've recently heard of two very famous entertainers that passed away within about a week's time. One was Betty White, the golden girl at 99 years of age. And another one was Bob Saget, uh, America's dad, if you ever watched the show Full House. Uh, he was in his 60s. Both of these people were very well known. Both of them were, were very funny. Both of them were accomplished in their field. They were talented, and they were probably secure, as far as I know, uh, as far as wealth and treasure went. Interestingly enough, both of these people's wealth and fame was wrapped up in who they were, in their humor, in their personality, in their performances. Yet neither one of them could secure that value beyond their last breath. Treasure on earth will never benefit us beyond our last breath. Dennis read a section from Psalm 49 earlier, and I want to read a few more verses that are earlier in that psalm. Psalm 49, verse 10 through 12. He sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling place to all generations. Though they called lands by their own names, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. Our lives here, at best, are temporary. And the most secure earthly treasure is temporary. The most celebrated and wealthy people alive have no better eternity 
because of their earthly treasure. And no amount of wealth can commend us to God on the last day. Jesus spoke about this in a very similar way in Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse number 16. He told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is for the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Perhaps Jesus had Psalm 49 in his mind as he taught that parable. I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, Luke, uh, Jesus uses the same terminology in Luke 12 as he does in Matthew 6, and it's the idea of laying up or treasuring treasures. The alternative in Luke 12 is to be rich toward God. The alternative in Matthew 6 is the same, though it's worded differently. It's treasuring treasure in heaven. And when we read that, in heaven, it, it may as well be in God. Uh, the Jewish authors often substituted the word heaven for God. We've already noticed that in the way that Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven, whereas the other gospel writers call it the kingdom of God. So we're not to treasure earthly treasures, but we are to treasure godly treasures. So we ask the question, what would that be? Well, the qualifier that Jesus gives is that godly treasures, heavenly treasures, are not subject to moth, to rust, or to thieves. Nobody can ruin them, nothing can eat them, and no one can steal them. These treasures are the treasures of righteousness, treasures of relationship with God, things that we can take beyond the grave. These treasures are spiritual, they're lasting, things like joy, things like peace. And what else? What else can go beyond the grave? Well, our souls go beyond the grave. And the souls of other men and women go beyond the grave. Souls are not earthly treasures. They are eternal as well. Maybe think about it another way. Um, we ought to treasure what God treasures. And we ask the question, does God treasure the things of this earth? Well, in some sense, you could say he created the earth, he created all things, and he called it good. But in the same rate, one day, he has promised to destroy all of this and create it again. So what good is it to ultimately treasure anything on this earth that will one day be burned up? May we rather treasure God. May we treasure what he treasures. May our hearts desire and our satisfaction rest in God, who he is and what he treasures. We see a single treasure. Secondly, we see a single eye. We'll read on again, verse 22 and following. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. 
But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? The eye is the lamp of the body. What does a lamp do? It provides light. It, uh, it gives us the ability to see. And uh, this metaphor makes sense in a simple way. The, the eye lets light in. When you close your eyes, it's dark and you're seeing. When you're blind, it's dark in your vision. And what we see is one of the main ways that we take in knowledge or what we know. In scripture, light is sometimes knowledge or sometimes understanding. So in this metaphor, what we see or what we look at determines the outcome for the rest of our body. The light or the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your body is full of light. But if your eye is bad, your body is full of darkness. If your eye is healthy, um, some translations have the word single instead of healthy. That's why I use that term. And uh, it's, it's a proper translation as well. Well, what is a single eye? Does it mean that you have gone and plucked out one of your eyes like we read back in chapter five for those who are tempted to lust? Um, I don't think so. I don't think that's what Jesus means. Um, single is clear. It's focused. And you ask the question, does an unhealthy eye see clearly? No, it doesn't. Um, occasionally, I suffer from what they call floaters. In my left eye, I get this glob of stuff that floats around in front of my eye, and it makes me my vision blurry for a week. And then it, I guess, floats off to the side of my eye. I don't know. But when my eye is not healthy, my vision in that eye is rather blurry. It's not sharp. It's not focused. And that's the problem. An unhealthy eye has no clear vision. It has no clear focus. Perhaps if you're blind, it's no sight at all. So what's desirable is a sharp vision, a sharp focus. That is what is good for the rest of our body uh, or for our life, as it were. Well, let me ask you this. I can't say for certain that Jesus had this in mind, but I think it fits. I think he may have. What happens when you try to focus on two things at once? Well, either we get distracted or you go cross-eyed. And when you go cross-eyed, your vision is not clear, is it? It's blurred. So the image here, I think, is focus. What are we looking at? The source of light for our lives, for our body, depends upon what we focus on, what we look to. If that vision, if that focus is healthy, then we have light for our lives. But if it's blurred or darkened, then we have confusion and darkness. Now, this ties in directly to the idea of laying up treasures. Because we, we could say that what we treasure is what we focus on. It's what we look to. It's what we trust in, what we hope in. Is that focus our earthly treasure? Then, by following Jesus' teaching, our eye is unhealthy. Our focus is blurred. Is it Godward or heavenly? Then I would say, and I think we could say, our vision is clear. Our eye is healthy. What we look to and what we treasure, what we trust in, are critical. If our goal is righteousness and peace and eternity, then what we stake our lives on must exhibit those things as well. 
Paul in 1 Timothy 6, he writes a little note to the rich and keeping a, that this section is about what we treasure. I want to read this. As for the rich in this present age, he says, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They, the rich, are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. I think Paul could have taken these words right out of the mouth of Jesus. Again, there's not a condemnation here for the rich, but rather a, a warning and a charge. And the charge has to do with what they trust in what they set their hope on. We could even say what they focus on. And what is the goal? Well, at the end of verse 19, the goal is that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So that which is truly life is not the riches. It's a Godward focus that leads to righteousness. And it's God who provides richly. And there's something in this passage that's helpful too, because notice it is God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. There is no sin in enjoying the good treasure which God provides so long as that enjoyment doesn't lead to us making those things our ultimate treasure. If you're a pet owner, perhaps a dog owner specifically, you feed your pets, I hope at least, and uh, there is a clear mark of distinction between a dog which enjoys the food that his master gives him and a dog which makes food his everything. So on one hand, you have a dog that, that wags its tail when he hears the, the little pieces of food in his food bowl. That is far different than a dog which will bite your hand to get your sandwich. One enjoys the blessing, the other one idolizes the blessing. And I think it's the same with us. There's no sin in being blessed. There's no sin in enjoying the good things that God gives to us. But when we view the blessing as everything, when that is our goal, when it's our treasure, when that is our focus, and we've made that thing into an idol, we've missed the point of what God is doing in our lives. We ask the question, do we look to and trust the things that we have, or do we look to the God who provides them? Do we look to and trust the God who provides them? Do we focus on and set our affection on our riches or on God who provides our riches? We can't go to this subject at all without referencing this well-known passage where Paul says again in 1 Timothy 6, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Again, in this passage, money is not the problem. The riches, the blessings are not the problem. It's, it's the focus. It's the setting of affection. It's the craving for money. That's what drives us away. In this case, Paul says it drives many away from the faith. And tying it back, it's not that we have treasures that is the problem. It's what we treasure, ultimately. That's the key question. The single treasure 
a single eye, a single master. Look at verse number 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. A single master. And the warning here is that you cannot serve two masters. Now, the idea of serving is not simply just working for. It's the idea of, of ownership. It's also the idea of devotion. Uh, certainly, a person today can hold two jobs. Perhaps you do. Um, I do in, in one sense of the term. And I think it's possible to hold two jobs and to do both of those things well. But the concept here is not holding two allegiances. If a servant claims total devotion to two different masters, then at some point in the very near future, there's going to be a clashing of those allegiances. To bring this down into terms that we use probably all the time, we speak about multitasking. Well, you can read certain, certain scientific studies and different tests, and scientists say there's really no such thing as multitasking for humans because when we say we're multitasking, we say that, that we're, we're focusing on two things at once. Like we're watching a movie and we're balancing our checkbook or we're driving and talking or, or we're cleaning and listening to the radio. Well, when we multitask, there's almost always a primary and a secondary task. Our minds are constantly going back and forth between the two. And how good we are at multitasking really depends on how fast we can switch between the two things. Well, the same could be said here. There can be no total devotion or allegiance to two different masters. We can try to serve both, but we will always be switching back and forth. Here, the two masters, as Jesus said, are God and money. Now, you could substitute almost anything there for money. You could substitute success, uh, politics, appetite, sex, possessions, anything. Uh, if we try to serve the master of money, we will not serve the master who is God. But here's the thing. If God is our master, then everything else that we have in life can fall into service of him. We can serve God with our money, with our possessions, with our time. But we cannot serve our money possessions, or time, and still serve God. There's a difference there. Serving God as our one master does not mean that we have to get rid of everything in our life. No, God is the one who richly blesses us with those things to enjoy. The question is, how are we utilizing them? How are we using our gifts, our talents, our time? All the things that we have are tools that can be used. Money is a tool that can be used for good and righteousness, or it can be used for evil. Our possessions can be used to glorify God, or they can rob glory from God. Our time can be redeemed and utilized for the mission of God's kingdom, or it can be wasted and distract us from that mission. A familiar passage that I think is fitting here, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Back in verse 21, we read again, 
Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the real issue, again, is what is our heart? Where is our heart? Where your treasure is reveals where your heart is. Well, our treasure is supposed to be heavenly, Godward. And if this is the case, it shows that our heart is fixed on God. We saw also, again, what is our eye focused on? What are we looking at? And that's really, I think, what we trust in. If our trust is earthward, then our eye is unhealthy. But if our trust is in God, it's heavenward, then our focus and vision is clear. And all that shows us who our master truly is. We're mastered by what we focus on, by what we treasure. We're mastered by what we trust. And what we are to trust in is the Lord, as Proverbs 3, 5 says, and to lean not on our own understanding. We are to acknowledge God, it says, in all of our ways. Now, we could say there, acknowledge God with everything we do. We could say, acknowledge him with everything we have. Acknowledge him with all of our time, all of our possessions, all of our time, all of our treasures. They are all God's to begin with. And if we see God as our master and Lord, then everything we have is in service to him. So whether you are wealthy or comfortable or just scraping by is really of no consequence so long as everything you have is available for God's service. And that doesn't always mean that you have to give it up, that you'll never see it again. God blesses us partly for our enjoyment, for our peace. And it's a wonderful thing, again, so long as our possessions, so long as those blessings don't become our new master. At the end of the day, we have to keep the ultimate perspective in mind. If we go back to Jesus' words again, uh, it is treasure in heaven, not treasure on earth, that we are to, to store up, to lay up, and to treasure. It's the audience of one and a single master that we are to serve with everything we are, everything we have, everything we do with a single eye of devotion. Paul says in Philippians 2 about Christ Jesus, that God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. <clears throat> if the question is, who is our master? Well, the answer is given. <clears throat> Jesus Christ is Lord. He is master. All other things are lesser than him and are to be subservient to him. We cannot truly serve him and any other thing with a total devotion. So what are some ways we can apply this passage today? Well, one thing I would say is to spend some time meditating on the difference between earthly treasure and heavenly treasure in your life. Now, we mentioned a few things, things like righteousness, things like salvation, things like the souls of men and women. Um, I can't answer every single aspect of what in your life is, is heavenly treasure or earthly treasure, but ask questions like this. What is it that God treasures? Or what is it that I can take beyond the grave? Or what is it... <clears throat> that moth and worms and thieves cannot take 
away from me. Another application is this. Think about whether you are trying to live your life cross-eyed. Now, again, what I mean by that is whether or not you are trying to focus or trust in multiple different things. Or if you have multiple different allegiances that you're trying to give all of your time, possessions, and actions. Now, we all have moments and seasons of wavering, but we cannot live in a constant state of double vision. And we ask the question, is Christ our treasure? Is he our vision? And then finally, by way of application, think about what truly qualifies as need versus want, as necessity versus luxury. Uh, we are so blessed in our time, in our space, um, that I know I often move things that are luxury into the category of necessity. The problem with that is when those luxuries are taken away, then I begin to question God as to why he would remove something that I really need. But maybe most of the time the issue is that I didn't really need that thing to begin with. Paul's words in Philippians 4:13 are helpful here where he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now in a couple of weeks, uh, in February, there'll be the Super Bowl game that's played and no doubt written on one or more of the athletes eye black or on their cleats will be that reference, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things. But Paul wasn't talking about kicking a field goal when he wrote that from jail to the Philippians. Paul was referencing the fact that he had learned how to be abased and how to abound, how to have nothing and how to have everything. He had learned contentment in abundance and in need in the highs and in the lows. And that's how we can apply it as well. Rich or poor, comfortable or scraping by, we can endure anything because of Christ, our master, and our audience of one. And then lastly, by way of application, perhaps this whole idea of Christ being master and Lord is something that you need to settle in your life. I don't know. I can't answer that question. Christ Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. One day, all will proclaim that. But right now, would you consider him as master and Lord, as the one who came to this earth, lived a sinless, perfect life, made a way for us to be righteous before the God of heaven? Would you come to him by faith and trust in what he's done and then walk by faith in his ways? Our life does not consist in our treasures, but in our Lord. May we treasure and look with a single eye to our true master. Lord Jesus, thank you for your words. They're difficult, but they're good. They're life-giving. May we not treasure things that we simply enjoy. Uh, not that we can't enjoy them, but may they not be our focus. May they certainly not be our master. May we look to you with, a, with a, a clear eye of trust. May we follow you, hope in you, and may we serve you, not just with our minds and with our words, but with our bodies and everything that you've given us. Lord Jesus, you are the master. May we see that. May we follow you. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.